One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy. So let's talk about the next hormone in our list. And, you know, let me just reiterate something I said in the last episode is that um, even though we could theoretically rank hormones in positions of ultimate or universal importance, it's very difficult to do that simply because hormones work uh, very much in an interdependent manner. We started with thyroid simply because thyroid seems to have the most universal application since every cell and every tissue, uh, with the exception of red blood cells, actually has uh, receptors for thyroid hormones. And these are pretty much evenly distributed throughout the whole body. And all other hormonal systems, whether we're talking about um, reproductive hormones, even cortisol, they work better when thyroid hormone is sufficient. Uh, and I also included in that how the insulin receptors work better when thyroid hormone levels are optimized as well. And so why don't we talk about insulin since um, there seems to be a very important relationship between thyroid hormones and insulin. And insulin in and of itself deserves a very high place because uh, when you look at, let me say it this way. If you want to know which hormones are perhaps more most important to look at and be concerned about, look at the hormones that are involved in the chronic and frequent diseases that we suffer with in industrialized countries. Uh, certainly there's no shortage of thyroid hormones uh, or hormone disorders and hypothyroidism. Certainly there's no shortage of hyperglycemic, hyperinsulinemic disorders. Let's translate that into words like prediabetes and diabetes. And there's certainly no shortage of reproductive hormones and, and so on. And so we can just kind of look at what's going on in the world with ourselves or with people around us to, to know which are the most important hormones for us to focus on. So we started with thyroid. Let's talk about insulin. In, in fact, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read a, the abstract or a portion of the abstract of a paper that was just published by the International Journal of molecular science uh, last year, it was uh, June of 2021, I think it was, um, because they have a very succinct description of insulin, what it is, what it does, and then we'll talk about some of the nuances that don't necessarily get captured in like a single review article, but are important more on a clinical basis or a practical basis if you're, uh, you know, a per just a regular healthcare consumer and you're not a practitioner yourself. So this is reading from the abstract here. Insulin is a polypeptide hormone. It just basically means amino acids or, or protein-based. It's a polypeptide hormone that's mainly secreted by the beta cells in the islets of Langerhans of the pancreas. doesn't matter what cells. It's the pancreas that makes them. The hormone potentially coordinates with glucagon. It's another hormone we'll end up talking about. To modulate blood sugar or blood glucose levels. And insulin acts via an anabolic pathway. Anabolic just simply means building up and storing things, while glucagon performs catabolic functions. Another word to say is uh, breaking down. And, and in fact, and, and this is my commentary here, I'm not reading from the abstract, uh, when you look at the action of a hormone like insulin, 
it's probably best to be put into the context of um, alternating pairs, that's not the right phrase, um, antagonistic pairs. Uh, insulin does certain things, Gluco glucagon does the exact opposite. And, you know, kind of mentally in your mind, just hold the picture of a couple of kids on the seesaw. When one goes down, the other one's got to go up. And insulin and glucagon coordinate function together. In interestingly, they're both made by the pancreas. They're just made by different cells. Uh, beta cells make insulin. Alpha cells make glucagon. Uh, not that that means much to just a regular healthcare consumer. That's just the physiology and the anatomy. Um, but it's important to note that they do opposite things. Insulin is something that allows you to store nutrients and build up tissues. And glucagon does the exact opposite. It liberates things, it breaks things down so we can utilize them. And when these hormones get out of balance and they are discoordinated, which is very easy to do with um, diet and lifestyles that don't support normal hormonal balance, uh, obviously there's some genetic variations here as well that make some people more predisposed to things like insulin resistance or high blood sugar, high insulin levels. Um, but nevertheless, it's best to look at these things as antagonistic peers. One guy does one thing, the other guy does the opposite, and the net function is really a, a reflection of how these two things are either going up or going down in relationship to each other. Now, I said that as if those two hormones work against each other in isolation, but as we already know, there's an impact of thyroid hormone sufficiency on insulin receptor sensitivity, and so we can't ignore the fact that other hormones have impacts on how these two are playing with each other and how that dance ultimately plays out. Let me get back to the abstract. Insulin regulates glucose levels in the bloodstream and induces glucose storage in the liver, in the muscles, and in the adipose or in the fat tissue, resulting in overall weight gain. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't mean if you have some insulin, you're going to gain body fat. It just means that if your insulin levels are too high, one of the outcomes of that is you have stored too much in your cells. And we can see that most obviously in the accumulation of body fat. Right? And this is one of the outcomes of uh, hyperinsulinemia or having high insulin levels, things that are, too, that are inappropriate, um, is that people tend to lay down body fat. And you know, as we'll talk about just in, in a minute, um, not only does high insulin result in an increase in body fat storage or accumulation, it can induce the growth of fat cells, the number of fat cells that you have, and it can shut down your body's ability to burn body fat. And so the net result is, hey, I, I get fatter, I get more fat tissue, and I can't lose weight because your insulin levels are too high. I mean, that's ultimately probably the easiest way to summarize the outcome of having poorly controlled insulin. It's just very simply, you store a whole bunch of stuff and it doesn't go away. And that usually results in, in accumulated body fat. Again, back to the abstract. The modulation of a wide range of physiological processes by insulin makes its synthesis and levels critical in the onset and progression of several chronic diseases. And this is, you know, extremely well known. It's extremely well um, described in the medical literature. We encounter it in clinical practice all the time. You probably know people who have high insulin, high blood sugar type problems, although you might not understand them as being high insulin. But what we do know is that <clears throat> hyperinsulinemia, having a high insulin level, drives things like inflammatory 
conditions, right? And insulin itself is a pro-inflammatory compound. And when people have more insulin, it activates inflammatory pathways in the body so that in general, people with higher insulin have more inflammation than if we could get their insulin down to a reasonable level. We'll talk about what that is towards the end of this little discussion here. Um, so not only does high insulin cause the accumulation of body tissue, most notably uh, fat tissue, not only does insulin um, increase body fat, it suppresses lipolysis or the ability to break down body fat and use it for fuel. And so it really kind of prevents weight loss. Even so, when you're in a hypocaloric state and you're exercising all the time, it doesn't really matter. If your insulin's not under control, you're not going to lose weight. It's physiologically very difficult to do that. But the inflammatory cascade that comes out of having high insulin and high blood sugar um, is systemic, and that tends to promote degeneration or dysregulation of functions in other areas of the body, particularly areas where you have other challenges or maybe where you are genetically predisposed to having problems. So for example, if I am genetically predisposed to having heart disease and I don't control my insulin, then the probability of heart disease happening in my lifetime increases the longer I have high insulin levels. If I am genetically predisposed to having something like a neurodegenerative condition like Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia, then the longer I go with high insulin levels, the more my brain degenerates and deteriorates. I mean, it's even to the point now where research for the last decade or so has actually described Alzheimer's disease as type three diabetes. Basically, they say this is diabetes of the brain. That's how tightly interlinked these systems and these mechanisms are. Let me give you two more statements from the abstract, and then we'll try to flesh this out just a little bit more over the next five minutes or so. The major purpose of insulin is to regulate the body's energy supply by balancing micronutrient levels during the fed state, meaning after you eat, insulin helps you take the nutrients from your foods and get it into your tissues. And then finally, insulin is critical for transporting intracellular glucose to insulin-dependent cells and tissues such as the liver, the muscle, and the adipose tissue. In fact, when we look at all the cells that require um, or use glucose as an energy substrate, you know, we take glucose in, it gets into our cells, we use that to make energy. Um, the heaviest consumers, if you will, of glucose and therefore energy and energy production are liver, muscle, adipose tissue or fat tissue and the brain. In fact, the brain, even though it's a relatively light and small organ, can consume up to 30% of your glucose in, in terms of serving its energy needs. But for the most part, uh, let's kind of leave the brain off to the side for the moment. Um, for the most part, when we talk about insulin's activity, we talk about the impact on the liver and on the muscle and on adipose tissue. Hi there, it's Dr. Noseworthy. I want to extend my appreciation to all of you in the Inflammation Nation who have helped my podcast become a great success in these first few months. I truly appreciate you. I also wanted to let you know about my brand new do-it-yourself online program called the Five-Step Gut Protocol. I designed this program for people who want to take charge of their own health and stop waiting around for someone else to tell them what to do. I've combined old naturopathic principles with cutting-edge research to create a truly unique program that will help you construct your own gut protocol. If you've ever wondered if you have gut infections, a leaky gut, or a bad microbiome, 
then this program will walk you through the steps to figure that out and gives you the tools that you need to formulate a practical strategy to help make things better. I guarantee at the end of this course, you'll know more about your gut than your doctor does, and you will feel confident that you know how to address your unique situation. You can check it out at my website at www.drnoseworthy.com. That's drnoseworthy.com. And just look for the tab at the top that says the programs. Thanks for listening. And so let me just tell you a couple of things about that. I've already kind of given you just a little bit of a um, an overview of what happens with fat tissues. But let me talk just a little bit about the impact of insulin on the liver. Well, actually, let, let me back up and let me just mention this is that we talked about how the pancreas, the alpha cells, or I'm sorry, the beta cells of the pancreas secrete insulin. Well, what's the trigger for that? Tr trigger for that is eating food, but most particularly eating carbohydrates. When you look at the studies in the medical literature that look at the insulin response to different macronutrients like protein, fat, and carbohydrates, there is an insulin response to protein and to fat, but it's very minimal, particularly if you combine those together. And interestingly enough, when you, when you look out in nature and you look at protein sources, you always see protein and fat together, even though you might choose to, you know, say eat, uh, eat lean meats. Maybe you eat a chicken breast instead of dark meat, or maybe you choose lean steaks that don't have a lot of fat and marbling. Nevertheless, there are no natural protein sources out there, particularly animal proteins that are devoid of fat. And so you always see fat and protein together, which when you consume those, let's say you sit down and you, you know, you have a six ounce ribeye or something, you're not going to get much of an insulin response from that, which, you know, might be a clue as to one of the ways that we control insulin is by modifying our diet, de-emphasizing things like carbohydrates, particularly the ones that spike your insulin and opt for increasing the consumption of uh, proteins and fats, obviously healthy ones. But getting back to this idea of how we eat food and it causes insulin to go up, it really only happens when carbohydrates are in the equation. Now, to, to go one level deeper in that is we can divide carbohydrates into high glycemic foods and low glycemic foods. And what that means is that uh, we can rank foods as to how quickly excuse me, how quickly and how high they can spike our glucose and our insulin. So for example, things like table sugar rank very high on what we call the glycemic index. Meaning if I consume something that has sugar in it, or heaven forbid, I just take a tablespoon of sugar and pop it in my mouth, I'm going to very quickly spike my blood sugar and spike my insulin. And you can imagine that if I, if I eat a lot of sugar, um, and sugary type foods consistently throughout the day, then I'm constantly getting blood sugar spikes. I'm constantly getting high insulin and that hyperinsulinemia is going to have an impact on my body. It's going to have me store things, excess energy, calories get stored as body fat. There's impact on how my liver stores energy as a fuel supply. There's impact on my muscles in terms of protein synthesis but ultimately, at the end of the day, what we end up with is more body fat, more inflammation, and the pro promotion of things like high blood sugar states, perhaps leading to things like type 2 diabetes, and the inflammatory cascade, which goes systemic, then promotes chronic degenerative diseases. Most importantly, it's going to be whatever you're genetically predisposed to or what you already have. 
let me just give another potential example. Let's say that I've you know, got rheumatoid arthritis and my hands are all stiff and painful and the, the knuckles are kind of misaligned just because the cartilage degenerates. If I go to a crap diet and I'm eating sugar all the time and I get chronically inflamed and my high insulin go or my insulin levels go up, my rheumatoid arthritis will get worse. <laughs> and, and so you can see that, you know, I guess subconsciously I'm trying to rank these hormones in, in terms of metabolic importance. And we're starting with things that have global impacts. When your insulin levels are not under control, everything can hit the fan. That's the problem. Everything can hit the fan. So how do you, how do you kind of manipulate your diet to reduce your insulin levels? Well, the first thing is to control carbohydrate intake and also to control the total number of calories that you're consuming. Uh, but most importantly is to opt for carbohydrates that are um, low glycemic. And you can just go to Google and type in glycemic index and you'll get any number of websites that will tell you, you know, here's a list of foods, here's the glycemic index. Basically, anything that has a glycemic index of say 55 or below is considered low glycemic. And then there's kind of a moderate list and then there's a high glycemic food. You want to stay away from the high and the moderate stuff. And you want to stick with carbohydrate sources that are on the low glycemic end, which for the most part is going to include things that have more fiber in them that slows down or blunts the blood sugar impact as well as the insulin impact on your body. So as a general rule, if you're trying to reduce your insulin, step number one is reduce your carbohydrate intake and make better choices. Get rid of the starches, get rid of the the grains get rid of the high spiking or the high glycemic index foods that are going to spike your blood sugar and spike your insulin. And your body's going to shift in, and change its insulin level as a result of that. All right, let me make a, a couple of final comments on some of the impacts of, of liver and muscle and, and fatty acids or sorry, adipose tissue or fat tissue. So in the liver, um, when you eat in your your blood sugar spikes, your pancreas goes, okay, there's a lot of blood sugar here. This is not necessarily good. Let's take that, let's make insulin. And with the action of insulin, we're gonna take the glucose now that's in the bloodstream, we're gonna put it into our cells. And so as it relates to the liver, what insulin promotes is the formation of what's called glycogen. And glycogen is just essentially stored glucose. You know, think of glucose or blood sugar floating around in your bloodstream. Well, if you take a whole bunch of glucose molecules and connect them together into a longer molecule of multiple glucose units, that's what we call glycogen. And so in your liver, also in your muscles, you have these glycogen stores, which means that if I decide to skip a meal and I need some fuel, glucagon then can activate what's called uh, glycogenolysis, which is where we take glycogen out of the liver and out of the muscles and break it down and liberate it, if you will, put it into the bloodstream so we can use it as a fuel source. And this is part of the design of, of how the human body works is that if I don't consume food, I still have ways to make energy. And, and that's a whole different conversation because we can talk about gluconeogenesis and all this kind of stuff. But the bottom line is this, as it relates to liver, when your insulin levels go up, you take glucose out of the bloodstream and you form this thing called glycogen, which is essentially glucose stored in your liver. The problem is this, is that when your liver storage compartment gets full, where does the glucose go? Well, we know it can go into muscles and so there is muscle glycogen, but here's the deal. 
if your liver glycogen storage is full, if your muscle glycogen storage is full, any excess carbohydrate intake, any excess glucose, then gets converted into triglycerides, which then gets converted into body fat, which is why it's so important to control your carbohydrate intake. Not only does it help to promote normal body composition, the balance between lean muscle mass, bone, as well as fat tissue, it also helps to control the insulin levels that are being produced. The more carbohydrates you eat relative to your carbohydrate tolerance, the higher your blood sugar is, the higher your insulin is, the higher your inflammation is, the more you stuff glycogen into your liver and your muscles, and then you overflow any excess into triglycerides and ultimately into body fat. Now, that's a lot. <laughs> Let me talk about muscles just very briefly here. Um, part of Part of the anabolic impact of insulin is to take glucose into the, into the cell, right, to store as glycogen to use as energy for the muscles themselves. But part of that process, when that, when that insulin system gets activated in the muscle tissue, also what we see are amino acids going into the muscle. And what are amino acids? They come from protein from dietary protein, but in our body, amino acids are the building blocks of our skeletal muscle or any protein type structure. And so with higher levels of insulin, we get an influx of glucose into the cells, into the muscle cells, along with an influx of amino acids to actually make proteins. Now that's kind of a razor's edge. And a lot of these hormonal systems have what we call U-shaped curves, where the impact of insulin does one thing at a low level and it does something else at a higher level. And that's very characteristic of a lot of the different compounds um, that are in, in the human body. It doesn't mean that the more insulin you have, the more muscle you'll make. It doesn't work that way. What ends up happening though is the more insulin you have, if you, if you fill up your storage compartments in your skeletal muscle, then any excess then begins to spill over and we're kind of back to the same place that we were when we talked about the impact of insulin on the liver. When you fill up your glycogen storage in the muscle and or the liver, everything spills over and now we start to lay down body fat and we shut down our body's ability to break it down and start becoming lean again. And that ultimately is also the third impact of high insulin on fat cells. And I mentioned this in the very beginning of this episode is that not only do we run into problems of, hey, we've, we've um, totally filled up our glycogen storage in other places. The third option now is to increase the, the amount of fat stored in body tissue. But what happens with high insulin levels uh, is that the fat tissue does two or three things consistently. Number one, the fat cells you have store more fat so they get bigger. Number two, it can trigger a process where you actually make new fat cells to handle the excess calorie load and the impact of insulin as well. Number three, and by the way, that, that process is called lipogenesis, that's making fat. So either expanding your existing fat cells or making more fat cells or a combination of both. But insulin inhibits lipolysis or the lipolytic pathway, which means we can take the fat inside our fat cells break it down, put it into the bloodstream where it then acts as a fuel source. And then ultimately at the end, under the influence of insulin, fat cells become 
hormonally and immunologically active. Uh, there, these, there are a class of compounds called adipokines, and there are different types of adipokines, many of which are classified as pro-inflammatory compounds. And so what ends up happening in the hyperinsulinemic state is that your fat cells become hormonally and immunologically active, promoting inflammation, which then adds to the inflammatory load. So you get a double whammy. You get the systemic inflammation that comes from the high insulin, and then you get a fat-based system, your adipose system, which now becomes hormonally and immunologically active, and it promotes even more inflammation. So let's talk about, um, and we'll wind up with this. Um, how do you know if your insulin is okay? Um, don't pay attention to the laboratory range because that's a statistical average of general populations and there's a lot of people these days that are overweight, hyperglycemic, hyperinsulinemic and so the laboratory reference ranges typically are reflecting the insulin levels of a sick population. It is not okay to have double digit insulin levels. It's not okay to have insulin that's 19, 20, 21, etc. What you want to shoot for initially is you want to shoot for single digits. Whatever your fasting insulin is, and you have to have a fasting insulin to figure this out, not after you've eaten something for breakfast. You go get your labs done, you, you, at, your doctor, ask your doctor, order a fasting insulin level. Your first goal, if it's elevated, is to get it into the single digits. And then once you're in the single digits, your goal is to get it down around four or five. And there is some consistent evidence that the lower these levels are. You'll never have zero, that's okay. But when we're down around four or five, we're doing a lot to control the metabolic cascade that comes out of having high insulin levels. Now, obviously, there's a lot more that you know we could say about insulin as well as thyroid, which we did on, in our last episode. Um, but I'm going to leave it there because we're trying to keep these lessons in these episodes short and quick and kind of focus on the highlights. So here's the final caveat. Control your carbohydrates if you eat carbs consume enough for your own metabolism, make sure they are low glycemic, get your fasting insulin measured, and if it's elevated, your first goal is by controlling your carbohydrates and exercising to get your insulin levels into the single digit area. All right, we'll talk next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com, that's drnoseworthy.com, to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.